Uh, Turning your copy of God's Word to um, Genesis 25, printed in your bulletin is the wrong, uh, we won't be looking at 1 through 18, we'll 19 to 34, the end of Genesis uh, 25. And again, it's our practice to stand when we read God's Word, so if you're able to do that, let me ask that you stand now. Genesis 25, beginning in verse 19. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray. Uh, We pray, O Holy Spirit, that you would uh, teach us. Use this word to conform us more and more into the image of Christ, for it's in his name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. One of the highlights of our um, trip to Scotland last year uh, was walking up and down uh, the Royal Mile in Edinburgh. Uh, It also happens to be one of the lowlights of our trip to Scotland last year, walking up and down the Royal Mile in Edinburgh. We uh, attended worship service at St. Giles Cathedral that, what, 450 years ago, John Knox stood in that pulpit and boldly proclaimed the gospel, I'm not sure Christ was mentioned at all uh, in that worship service. You could walk down the Royal Mile just a little ways to um, the, the market, the Royal Mile Market. Uh, it is open seven days a week. Um, jewelry, music, lotions, shirts, you name it, you can get it. But it's all inside of 
uh, the old Tron Kirk built in 1647. An empty church building now turned into a seven days a week market. Walk up the Royal Mile from St. Giles Cathedral and you can go into the hub. Edinburgh is the center of uh, several major significant international festivals. The hub is the place where Um, Well, it's the center of those festivals for the most part. You can rent it for weddings and parties and all kinds of cool things. Uh, But it was built in the 1840s to be the meeting place for the Church of Scotland. Used for a few years. Used for a church for a little while in the 1900s. But for the last uh, 20, 30 years, whatever the number is now, it has been the hub, the the central sort of uh, focal point of some of these international uh, festivals. You can walk through any number of other parts of the world where if you just look around, you think to yourself that the church maybe has never even been there. Here, Edinburgh, the, the, the seat of Reformed Presbyterianism just 500 years ago now with church buildings being used as a market. Empty church buildings used for other things. Even in our own country. In fact, this came up this morning in in, uh, our first Sunday prayer, which is the second Sunday because last Sunday was Easter. But even even mentioned, somebody prayed this morning, recognizing that that there are many... um, arenas of ideas in which the only ideas unacceptable are biblical Christianity. It's the one worldview you're not allowed to bring into uh, the arena of ideas. It's the one, the one worldview, the one belief system forbidden in the public arena. Churches, the church capital C, faces obstacles and conflicts throughout history. It's nothing new for us today. It has always been the case. The world will oppose the church. There are and there have been and there will be times when it looks like the church is losing. This passage reminds us that though the church is no stranger to conflict, though the church is no stranger to the struggles of this world, the church can't fail. It will not and it cannot fail. Notice there are any number of of conflicts in this passage. It's filled with Times when you think to yourself, the line of promise is in grave danger. The first comes in the form of Bethul, verses 19 and 20. We remember Bethul and Laban because they were in the previous chapter when Abraham sent his servant to go and find a wife for Isaac, and he found Rebekah and They were quick to recognize the servant's wealth, the amount of money he brought with him. And 
They were glad to let their sister go with this wealthy servant. But it's interesting. Anytime you read a genealogy in Scripture, or for that matter, for the most part, you read genealogies throughout history. They trace the Father's line. In fact, we make a big deal that in Matthew 1, there are women that show up in Jesus' genealogy. The fact that they're mentioned at all is kind of a big deal to us. But anytime you trace genealogies, you predominantly trace through the Father's line. That's, that's the pattern throughout biblical history. But notice the way verses 19 and 20 are written. Abraham had Isaac. Isaac was 40 when he took Rebekah. But look at the detail you get for Rebekah. The daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean from Paddan Aram, and the sister of Laban, the Aramean. You get a lot more detail about Rebekah than you do about Isaac. There's more ink spilled on explaining Rebekah and her background. We just, in the previous chapter, read about her. It's not like we've forgotten. It's not like Moses... You know, it's been so long ago that he's written about Rebecca. It was just in chapter 24. It hasn't really been that long. There's, there's much more information given about Rebecca than Isaac. You have to remember, for you and me, as we work through the book of Genesis on Sunday mornings, to us, that doesn't sound like conflict. That doesn't sound like, like a struggle for the line, the seed of promise. But you have to put yourselves in the shoes of those who were reading this for the first time. The Israelites traveling from Egypt to the promised land. As Moses writes the first five books of Scripture... They knew immediately. They read daughter of Bethuel, sister of Laban, and they bristle. Because they know good and well that Bethuel and Laban, that this family is going to cause trouble for Israel for years to come. Just wait until Jacob goes to get a wife. Laban is going to cause all kinds of trouble. Moses is preparing us. He's sort of setting us up for future conflict between the promised line of Abraham and Bethuel's line. The first conflict comes in the form of Bethuel. The second comes in the form of barrenness. Notice verse 21. Yet again, the promised line is in danger because the wife can't conceive a child. Remember, remember Sarah, Abraham's wife, Isaac's mom. You, you remember it was it was twenty five years from the time God called Abraham and Sarah out of their homeland and said, "Now go to this new land that I'm going to give to you, and it will be your land, and I'm, I'm going to give it to you, and you and and your descendants after you are going to live there." It was. 25 years from the time God promised Abraham descendants before Isaac was born. 
And here we're the next generation. And now Isaac's wife is barren. Isaac's wife is is unable to conceive and have children. The line of promise is in danger. Because there's... There are no children to carry on the line. God said, it's Abraham through you, this line will come. And He promised, it's through Isaac that this line will come. The promised seed will come, not through Ishmael, but through Isaac. 20 years of marriage. And still no child for Isaac. For you and me, we lose the, um, we lose the sense of urgency because we... We read verse 21, and we immediately read verse 22. We read one sentence, and then we immediately read the very next sentence. Isaac prayed to the Lord, verse 21, for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Well, I mean, there in one verse, there's a problem, and it solves so quickly that you and I lose the sense of fear. We lose the sense of conflict. We lose the sense of, of struggle. But we can relate. We see empty church buildings in Edinburgh. We see conflicts of ideas, biblical Christianity not invited to the table of ideas in 2018. That's the danger Isaac and Rebecca would have felt. That's the tension, the struggle they would have sensed. Every time you turn on the news and you think to yourself, man, you're just not, you're just not, it's just not okay to have a Christian worldview anymore. That's the tension Isaac would have felt. Besides, I mean, you and I go, okay, she was barren, verse 21. I mean, how, how long do you have to try to have a child before you're considered barren? Like, like, what does that word even really mean? Because, again, we read those two sentences and think, well... I mean, she was barren, Isaac prayed, she had a child, boom. I mean, it was really not that long, but he was 40, verse 20, when they got married. Look at verse 26. He was 60 when she had Jacob and Esau. That's a long time. That's that's long enough for them to have been married to start to think, is God really going to end the line here? He said it was through Isaac. Is he, is he really going to carry that to completion? This is a, a common problem in the line of promise. It's, it's no, a normal pattern for God to use the, the unlikely, the unusual, the uncommon, abnormal, the threatening scenarios in order to accomplish His purposes. There's a third conflict in this passage. It comes in the form of a battle. Look at verse 22. Rebecca conceives and the children struggled together within her. Now, ladies, you no doubt remember 
the odd feelings, the pain of elbows and knees as the child inside of you rolled over from one side to the other and you could almost physically watch an elbow go by on your belly. The times when they would stretch out all of a sudden and kick and you think, uh, my child just kicked my bladder. I'm in big trouble now. I can't believe this child is, what is going on? What is this child doing in here? You remember that pain. You remember that feeling. I'm not aware of any of you having twins. This is two. These are twins struggling together inside of her. I have this vivid memory of Nancy calling me in my office at Woodruff Road Presbyterian Church about 17 years ago. When maybe 16, maybe they were somewhere, the boys were somewhere less than four and a half and two and a half because that's when we moved to Mississippi. So it had, they had to be younger than that. Jeff, John and Lucas are fighting. Remember, she's a girl. She had one brother. John and Lucas are, I mean, they're, they're two and four. They're one and a half and three and a half. They're, they're fighting and wrestling. Is that normal? Is that okay? Is there blood? Nope. They're fine. That's normal. That's what boys do. They wrestle, they fight, they argue. These are twins who are doing that inside of Rebecca. But notice the verb used for struggle is the same verb used in the book of Judges for smashing skulls. They're not poking. This isn't, this isn't he's on my side of the car. They're going at it. And they haven't even been born yet. I mean, so much so that, that Rebecca's driven to this question, why is this happening to me? She literally says, why am I? And that's the end of the question. Like, you kind of have to guess where she goes. I mean, if this is happening, why am I? You can sense the struggle, the conflict. Jacob and Esau are smashing against each other. The church is in constant Conflict. There's struggles and dangers and threats that the church must endure. The promised line is, is in danger. There are conflicts for the line of promise throughout this passage. But notice that for every conflict, there is conflict resolution. It's interesting, really, to, if you could just to sort of examine how these different people resolved the various conflicts. Look at verses 21 and 22. Uh, for Isaac and Rebekah, their, their plan, their solution to the problem, verse 21, Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife. Now again, we lose the sense of time lapse in, because we're reading of this event thousands of years later. We read, she can't have a child, Isaac prayed, boom, she had a child, like it took 10 minutes. Like, we have this sense that, that the process 
was faster, or at least as fast as it, as it is for us to read it. Did he wait 20 years to pray? I don't think that's the implication of the passage at all. I think part of the aim is to say he's been praying for, okay, maybe not 20 years, 18 years. How long before he starts to say, God, Rebecca can't have a child. And, and he begins to urgently, deliberately, intentionally, thoughtfully pray for a child. There's every reason to assume he's prayed without ceasing. For 20 years. For God to grant them children. Rebecca, this battle is going on inside of her. So what's her solution? Verse 22. She goes and prays to God. She goes to inquire of the Lord. Do you remember how Sarah and Abraham solved their barrenness problem? Here, honey. Here's my maidservant, Hagar. Why don't you try her out? Let's see if she can solve this problem for us. Abraham and Sarah, their plan for solving the barrenness problem was, you know, adultery. Isaac and Rebecca pray. They run to God in prayer. When the church seems to be in conflict, when the world seems to rise against the church, what's your solution? What's your, what's your resolution? How do you react to that? Do, re, do you react in prayer? Do you seek God's wisdom and direction and power and sovereign rule in this world? Isaac and Rebecca run to God in prayer. That's not Jacob's solution though. Jacob's idea of conflict resolution is to lie, cheat, swindle, scheme, connive, whatever it takes. He's, he's a, a, a snake, really, more than he is a man. Look at verses 26 and verse 31. Verse 26, afterward his brother Jacob comes out with his hand. He's holding on to Esau's heel. And it's like he's been doing that the rest of his life. He's like he's been grasping at his brother's heel ever since. So his name was called Jacob. And then verse 31, Esau comes in from the field. He's, he's hungry. Sell me your birthright now. I want what you've got. You're the oldest. And quite honestly, that makes you the heir apparent. I want it. God's promised it to me. He, he probably knows that because mommy told him. Remember, he's... He's sort of the mama's boy of the two. God's promised to me, and so I've got to scheme and connive and trick my way into getting what God has promised. How can, how can I, Jacob asks, make sure that the promises of God come true? What can I do to sneak and trick my way into making sure that what God has said would happen does indeed happen? I mean, he, he could wait for God to, to accomplish His purposes in His time. 
He could wait for God to do exactly what God had said He would do and promised He would do. And, and quite honestly, what only God can do. He could wait for that, but I hate waiting. Why wait? When I can, when I can speed this up a little bit through my own usurping, heel-grabbing, scheming plan. He'll use his own ingenuity, his own heel-grabbing in order to make sure that the promise really is his. Or, you could go Esau's route. Esau, Esau chooses instead not to care. He chooses instead, rather than pray, rather than cheat or swindle, he chooses, I don't care what happens to me. The birthright doesn't matter to him at all. Verses 32 and 34, I'm about to die. What use is a birthright to me now? And then at the end, Moses tells us, thus Esau despised his birthright. Esau cares more about his physical passions and pleasures than on God's future promises. Food now, rather than promises later. He'd rather gratify his own fleshly desires than wait for God to accomplish His purposes. You know, there was a time when um, I, uh, I kind of had a reputation for giving out nicknames to people. It was mostly when I was doing student ministry, so it's been... Several years since I did that, Nicole um, played on our soccer team in, in, uh, when I was coaching uh, soccer at Dillon Christian School back in 96 and 97. Uh, she was on our soccer team. Uh, all her friends called her Nickel. I told her she wasn't worth a nickel, so we called her Penny. I can see now where that sounds like a bad idea. She liked it. All her friends called her Penny Ultimately, um, Victoria at Woodruff Road. Uh, she, she, John was two and couldn't say Victoria. He said Victoria, and so her nickname became Big. Again, that's, I can see where that would sound really bad. I think she, if she were here, she'd be okay with that. Sarah, uh, Victoria's, uh, went to the same school as Victoria. They were the only two um, girls that went to that school together. Um, I, there was a time when I was running from office back to to um, the youth ministry room and try to do some stuff. And every time I turned around, she was there. I said, you're, you're everywhere. I can't get rid of you. You're like a gnat. And so Nat became her nickname. Again, that's probably not nice either. Um, but she was okay with it. In fact, they would call each other those names at school. When they saw each other at school, Nat would call Victoria Big and Victoria would call Sarah Nat. And then their classmates would look confused. Um, that happens to Esau in this passage. He comes running in from the field and he says, basically he says, let me guzzle down that red stuff, red stuff. That's, that's basically what he says. He looks at this soup, he's like, let, and, it's, and it's, there's, this, there's this eagerness to this um, guzzle down, and, you know, just sort of red stuff, red stuff. So his nickname became Edom, it became red. Somebody somewhere along the way had said, hey, this is the guy that asked for red stuff, let's call him red stuff. Let's call him red uh, from here on out. Turn with me to Exodus chapter, I mean to Numbers chapter 20. 
Speaking of this conflict between Esau and Jacob, it, it doesn't go away. In Numbers chapter 20, verse 14, Moses sent messengers from Kadesh to the king of Edom. Hey, there's that word, Edom. Red stuff, red stuff. This is Esau. These are Esau's people. So these are the Israelites leaving Egypt, heading to the promised land, showing up to their cousins. These are Esau's descendants. Thus says your brother Israel. Jacob, the name Jacob gets later. You know all the hardship that we have met, how our fathers went down to Egypt, and we lived in Egypt a long time, and the Egyptians dealt harshly with us and our fathers. And when we cried to the Lord, He heard our voice and sent an angel and brought us out of Egypt. And here we are in Kadesh, a city on the edge of your territory. Please let us pass through your land. We will not pass through field or vineyard or drink water from a well. We will go along the king's highway. We will not turn aside to the right hand or to the left until we have passed through your territory. But Edom said, Do it and die. You shall not... I lost my place. You shall not pass through lest I come out with the sword against you. You show up at the border of your cousin's land and say, hey, I just want to walk through. I'm going to stay on the street. I'm not going to take anything from the fields. I'm not going to do anything. I'm going to stay right here on the road. Do it. And I come with my sword. Your head, your blood is on your own hands. The conflict between Jacob and Esau, between the promised line and the outsiders, between God's people and those who don't care, between the church and the world, does not go away. There's conflict. There's conflict, conflict resolution. But, you know, resolution is really just temporary. It's how these people handle that conflict in that moment. Conflict resolution really only gets you over this conflict. It doesn't solve conflict permanently. It's not a solution. It's just a resolution of of how am I going to go about handling this particular conflict at this time in this place. The real solution to the conflicts of God's people lies not in God's people, but in God Himself in the sovereign will and power of God. Look at verses 21 to 23 again in Genesis 25. Isaac prayed to Yahweh for his wife because she was barren. The next sentence is the important sentence. And the Lord granted his prayer. She conceives and bears a child only because of the sovereign interjection of God and His power in her womb, in their life. It's God stepping into this situation. It's God granting the request. It's God's sovereign will and action that preserves the line in the middle of this conflict. Yes, Isaac prayed but God opens her womb. 
prayer is a means of calling down God's power and blessing, but it's not magic. And we look to, we rely on, we depend on His sovereign power and will to accomplish His purposes in His world, in His way, and His time. That might mean the closing of the doors of a church somewhere. It might mean that the old Tron Kirk closes its doors and becomes a market. It might mean that the hub, which was designed for the Church of Scotland, built for the Church of Scotland, used as a church for a while, no longer becomes a church. But you know, right across the street from the hub is St. Columba's. The church I would go back to. I had to go to St. Giles once. It was a mistake. If you're ever in Edinburgh, go to St. Columba's. A good, solid, Bible-preaching, Christ-exalting church. Yeah, the hub was a church and it shut its doors, but right across the street, it's not across the Royal Mile, it's across the other street that goes the other way, is St. Columba's, a church that proclaims the gospel of Christ faithfully. The solution to conflict between... God's people and the world is not found in God's people, but in God Himself. Did you notice what Paul in Romans 9 did with this passage? He attributed Esau the older serving the younger to God's sovereign election. He says it's precisely because of God's sovereign electing will that this plays out the way it does. That Esau, the older, will serve the younger. You know, there's, there's nothing about Jacob that, that you and I find appealing. I mean, we tend to say, we tend to use the phrase mama's boy as a, as a put down. And that's where he, he was mama's favorite. Because he didn't really go outside. It reminds me of... Um, a girl back in Oxford whose friends asked her if she was athletic, and she said, well, I'm homeletic. She didn't get out much. She liked, didn't, she liked to be at home. Jacob's the same way. He's, he's cheating and swindling and conniving and scheming, and I'm not sure that we'd want to hang out with him. For that matter, Esau was the rugged outdoorsman type, ruddy, a hunter, the guy that liked to be out in the field and would come in smelling like the woods and the outdoors. A man's man kind of a, a guy? We probably would be more drawn to Esau. And yet God in His sovereign purposes and for His sovereign reasons chose to use Jacob the younger. Not because of anything in Jacob. Not because of his goodness. Not because of his obedience. Not because of his righteousness. Not because of his intrinsic worth. Not because he was good enough. This all happened before he was born. And God said, I'm bringing the line about. And I will protect and guard and keep the promised line. So when Christ says, I will build my church and the gates of hell cannot prevail against it, He says to us, 
Yes, hell wants to compete against the church. Yes, the world around you will, will be in conflict with you, with the church, forever. That's not going away. But it's equally true that they will not win. They cannot win. Believer in Jesus Christ, there's your comfort and hope in the midst of conflict. Not your right answers to those who would object to the gospel of Christ. It's not your own wisdom and, and great thinking that, that gives you hope for the church. It's not, it's not laws passed by the government that gives you hope for the church. It's Christ. It's His promise. I'm building my church. And hell itself cannot beat it. Will not beat it. Yes, there's conflict between the church and the world. But be comforted. Your King Jesus has promised to defend the church against all His and our enemies. And the world will not win. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, You have promised. You've promised to build Your church. You've promised to establish Your kingdom. You've promised to be at work in this world. And we long to see that not just in those areas of the globe, those parts of the globe where the gospel is, is breaking in, really in many ways for the first time ever. For the first time in the history of, of at least the New Testament church, we also long to see that happen in our own community where there are thousands, it seems, thousands of churches. We long to see your churches full. We long to see the church stand against the devil and his minions. And we long for you to give us the grace and the strength and the desire to do just that. Through Christ we pray. Amen.